I think acknowledging that the way people perceive us and the expectations they have of us and the snap impressions that they have of us is super important. When I was younger, I was in denial about that. And I wanted it to be, I wanted to operate in a society or live in a world where what I looked like didn't matter and people's perceptions didn't matter. And I think things became much more productive when I acknowledged the truth, which is, yeah, like when people see an Asian person, even like hearing an Asian name, there's, there's already assumptions that people are making. Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Wes Cow is a co-founder of Maven, a platform that enables anyone to build cohort-based courses and deliver an incredible student experience at scale. Prior to founding Maven, Wes co-founded the Alt-MBA, where she designed the program's coaching system, grew the community from zero to 550 cities in 45 countries in three years, and built a team of 40 people. Wes has thought of a leader in building cohort-based courses and frequently writes about marketing, online courses, and rigorous thinking on her blog. In this episode, we spoke with Wes about choosing to play games that you can win by turning bugs into features, the mental load created by the narrow range of motion Asian Americans, women, and other minorities are afforded, and learning to be comfortable taking up space and embracing productive conflict in the workplace. Wes, thank you so much for coming on to another episode of Across the Lines. One way that we love starting off the podcast and the episode with our guests is by asking them what their favorite dish was growing up. What was that for you? My favorite dish growing up and still today is Taiwanese fried noodles. So it's called bihun in Taiwanese. And it's dry noodles with little bits of mushroom, carrots, cabbage. It's so good. I also put lemon or lime on it. The next time my mom visits, I'm going to make her make me buckets of it because it's just amazing and I don't know how to make it myself. So yeah, that's my favorite. Oh, that sounds so delicious. Like I haven't had lunch yet. So I'm just hearing this and being like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I, this is exactly what I want right now. And Wes, you grew up in Fremont in California in the Bay Area. A few of our other guests actually grew up in Fremont as well, funnily oh, enough. Cool. So Christine and Robbie both went to Mission San Jose. So I feel like we have just like a critical, yeah. really, oh my gosh, oh, we have like a critical mass of guests from, from um, MSJ for some reason. But I'd love to hear a little bit about what that upbringing was like for you. From what we know, there's a sizable Asian population in that area. But what we also know from you is that your Asian identity is something that you've been thinking about for a while, but you haven't really fully express slash had conversations about in a more public setting, which is why we're really excited to have this conversation. So tell us a bit more about that upbringing and, and that journey. Yeah. My high school at Mission San Jose was 60 to 70% Asian. So it had a pretty good sizable Asian American population. When I tell people that they're pretty shocked by it. And it's, I think it's uncommon maybe in the U S um, 
But I also think like, well, why, why should that be weird? Because Asian Americans are Americans too. Most of my classmates were born in the US, grew up here. So I didn't have the vocabulary back then, but I feel like starting in high school, um, thinking about the model minority myth, I mean, didn't have that vocabulary, but, but you know, being an other, having to prove your Americanness, having to show that you're just as American as other people, you know, not wanting to hang out in big groups of Asian people because people might judge you for that, you know, not wanting to speak Chinese in restaurants in case people thought that we didn't speak English. I didn't have, I didn't have vocabulary back then to talk about a lot of these issues, but I think starting in high school is is when I um, started thinking about a lot of those and realizing, um, you know, the way that ethnicity and being a person of color played in to my experience as, you know, person, leader, um, young adult. So going back to high school real quick, I really liked growing up around so many Asian Americans because I got to see friends and fellow students who, you know, Asian Americans who were wrestlers and Asian American cheerleaders and Asian American football players, Asian American basketball players. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, Asians in band. And, you know, in, I don't know what else is stereotypically Asian, like, I don't know. The, the math Olympiad or like no, the chemistry exactly, Olympiad. The math Olympiad. There were Asians <laughs> in that too, for sure. But it was like Asians in a bunch of roles um, in, in, you know, student government, you know, student body president and stuff. So I liked that. I thought that was awesome seeing that, like, it, it helped me grow up not thinking that Asians had to be in a certain box. I liked that um, growing up, I saw Asian Americans doing a, a whole range of things. I think representation in the media is so important because of that. It really changes what you expect of yourself and what you expect people who look like you can do. And even to this day, when I'm watching Netflix or watching TV and I see an Asian American character come on, I'm like, yes, yes, right? And like, and my husband cheers along with me now and he didn't get it, he's white, he didn't get it before. And, and I explained to him that you grew up seeing white men on TV playing the ace hero, the pensive, thoughtful hero, the villain, the weird eclectic dude, the worker bee, the CEO, right? Like you see that whole range of white men being all these things. So you think like, oh, well, I can be any of these things, you know? Whereas with with Asian characters on TV, a lot of times it's IT, the tech support guy, like the hacker who comes in and fixes things and, you know, or, or a doctor, even now, when you look at a lot of shows, you don't really see an Asian woman as the CEO or an Asian man playing the CEO or creative innovator, Richard Branson type person on TV, right? It's, it's, it's still, um, the range is still more limited on, on what you see. So I think I, I talked about a bunch of things there, but I think growing up, it was great seeing the range of what Asian people can do and, and not really feeling limited by that. Going back to high school for a little bit, Wes, and, and Angie talked about this earlier too, where Christine, um, she went to the same school, Robbie went to the same school. I'm just fascinated with how there are so many um, talented people that are coming out of this one specific high school. And, and also they're, they're predominantly Asian American. Like what, what were the other little secrets do you think that that high school had that has uh, helped yourself, but also helped other people get into all these crazy leadership positions in society? You're going to think you're going to get a kick out of this. My co-founder, Gagan Biani, 
co-founder of Maven. Before this, he was co-founder of Udemy. He's also from Mission. We grew up together. <laughs> oh, oh my God. We school together. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's another example for you. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that it was a high-performing high school where we were a feeder school for most of the UCs and Ivy League. So I think my year, there were 40 or 50 people that went to Berkeley, another 40, 50 for UCLA, another 40, 50 for, you know, UC San Diego. So I think it was, it was an intense high school. I think like, that's just the other part, uh, which really goes to show that the people that you surround yourself with and the, the standard of what you think is normal really shapes your expectations of things. So when I went to, when I went to Berkeley, I, I heard from some people that it was a hard transition from high school to college, especially going for, you know, to an, an elite school or, you know, with a hard school, let's say. And I, I had applied to the Haas, the undergrad Haas School of Business. So you basically do, if you want to do, if you want to be a business major at Berkeley, you do two years, freshman, sophomore year, and then you apply to Haas. And if you get in, then you, you graduate, you know, the last two years with as a Haas major. And I remember a lot of people saying that it was so competitive at Haas and people were so competitive. And I remember thinking it was not that bad at all. I was like, really? Like, I don't, I think it's pretty normal. And then I reflected on my high school experience and I was like, okay, that's, that's probably why it's just, I just feel like this is normal. Yeah. It's a, it sounds like a pressure cooker environment for sure. And, and that's so funny because I, I have quite a few friends who went to Berkeley because I grew up in the Bay Area too. And a few who went to Haas. And the main complaint I hear is like, oh my gosh, it was so cutthroat. I hated it. People are the worst, but I guess juxtaposed to Mission San Jose, I can, I can see how you have that perspective there. Rewinding a bit to high school, college West and having journeys that are unconventional. I want to tie this a bit into this idea of having a spiky point of view, because I think that goes hand in hand with breaking out of the box and carving out and paving your own path that could be a bit off the beaten trail. Could you talk to us about the journey of growing into that strong perspective of having a differentiated point of view on things? I think I always had a pretty spiky point of view. It wasn't always a good thing. And I turned it from a bug into a feature, definitely. And for a long time, I, I felt like it was a bug, that it was a, a deficiency or downside about myself, that like, why couldn't I just be normal and like react to things normally the way normal people do? And it wasn't until later on that I realized that, that it's super important to turn a bug into a feature and for your own sanity, really, and to choose to play games that you can win. So I could either try to be a fish climbing a tree or embrace that I'm a fish. I should find environments of water and find environments where I can thrive. And so, you know, going back, rewinding to childhood and, and growing up, I was always really bad at standardized tests. I was bad at memorizing facts. And th those are things that are prerequisites to becoming a doctor or a lawyer. I mean, even the LSAT, the MCATs, board exams. If you think about, okay, these, these professions, what does it take to get there? It's a lot of memorization. It's a lot of test-taking, hard work. So my personality and the things I was good at didn't lend itself to that. So I realized pretty early on that I don't want to play that game. There are a lot of people who are better suited for that and would be amazing at that. And I should find something that I have a natural, unfair advantage in. I think this was like third grade or something. We were taking 
standardized tests. And the teacher called my parents in to have a sit down conversation because they were concerned that about the way that I answered questions and like, you know, where was this coming from? So one of the questions they gave as an example was little Joey is walking home from school. It's a really hard day. It's like a reading comprehension question where you read a paragraph and you answer questions. All right, so it's a hot day, little Joey's walking home and he sees a cool refreshing lake. So what does he do? And it's A, B, C, D. And the right answer was B, he jumps in the lake. And I had put, I forgot what I, I think I put like D, goes home. And to me, like that made perfect sense in my mind. And actually now in reflecting on it, I feel like it, it might be a cultural thing even because, you know, my logic was, well, at home, there's cold soda and air conditioning and things are clean. And my parents always said like, lakes are dirty. You know, like, I don't know about you guys, but my parents are like, don't swim in lakes, like swim in a pool. Like lakes are gross and dirty. And, and growing up, I just never thought that like people would jump into lakes. But I think that's a, a good illustration of maybe there was an obvious answer that most people could have anticipated at least and would have picked it. And, and God knows I've taken many SAT and GMAT courses on trying to train you on how to anticipate the right answer. You know, even if you know that like the logic is a little weird, like here's how you spot the right answer. I was never able to quite grasp that. Like I just couldn't see that. And so learning to read was hard for me too growing up. So I think like people are surprised by that because I'm, I write a lot and I also read a lot. But when I was first learning to read, I was a slow reader. I had to go into, you know, special sessions with an extra, you know, teacher, tutor or something. I actually remember thinking that I was special, like better than the other students that I had to go to this extra session one-on-one. -on -one. And now looking back, I'm like, I think it was because I was a remedial reader, right? So it's kind of funny. And I remember, you know, the teacher having flashcards and, and one flashcard said, it was a photo of a hamburger and the word was bun. And the teacher said, sound it out, sound out the, the letters and, and read this. And I was like, hamburger. And, and, she, and she's like, no, no, right? And so school, I think in general was, was hard for me. And I think that's not so obvious from the outside because I got decent enough grades to get by. I was you know, a good student on the outside, but it took a lot of tutoring behind the scenes. And I think that's important because people just sometimes assume like Asian people are just good at things or like good at getting good grades. But for me, there was a lot of behind the scenes work. And I was very fortunate, very lucky that my parents were able to afford tutors and, you know, extra classes and lessons for things. So I think all of this just like always kind of feeling like things that were easy for a lot of my friends were hard for me, but things that were hard for them came more easily for me. Um, I think that was a big theme. And then as I got older, I thought about really leaning into my strengths and um, choosing environments where the things I was good at were the important things and the things that I wasn't as good at were less important. And, and even to this day, when I think about career opportunities, I think about the overlap between what the business needs and what I'm able to provide that I'm uniquely suited for and naturally good at that I like doing and not, you know, trying to go against the grain and, and struggling so much, but choosing things that do come naturally and feel easy.
I love all the stories, Wes, and, and the reflections from the childhood. And, and you have a really good memory of all of these different moments that happen. I'm trying to piece together two uh, ideas that you've mentioned. One of them is, is what you just shared on making sure that you're playing the games that are most suited to you. But another topic that you've mentioned before is the lack of uh, range, maybe given to in, in your case, like Asian women in society to actually go and, and play those games that are more aligned to how they want to play that game. It may be actually hard to lean into those different games because it's not something that is necessarily accepted. Can you, can you talk about how you were able to, I guess, uh, bridge the gap between wanting to play your own games, but then also having this range of motion uh, be a little bit more restrictive in nature? How, how did you, how did you break through that, that like more structured, motion area that uh, was kind of provided to you? I think acknowledging that the way people perceive us and the expectations they have of us and the snap impressions that they have of us is super important. When I was younger, I was in denial about that. And I wanted it to be, I wanted to operate in a society or live in a world where what I looked like didn't matter and people's perceptions didn't matter. And I think things became much more productive when I acknowledged the truth, which is, yeah, like when people see an Asian person, there's all, even like hearing an Asian name, there's, there's already assumptions that people are making and acknowledging that that is the assumption that we're making. Like that's, that's reality. And then thinking about how do I want to go forward? What do I want to do with that? And I think a lot about pattern breaks versus pattern matches. So there's a certain tension with when you are a pattern break versus when you're a pattern match. There's sometimes when you do want to be a pattern match to things and, and it's kind of a, a sweet spot. It's kind of a fine line, if you will, because if you're too much of a pattern break, you're seen as like a threat to the establishment and you're just too different. It's too weird. Like, we don't know what to do with you. This is weird. And if you're too much of a pattern match, then you are put in the bucket with thousands of other people, um, assuming that you're, you're all the same, just same, same, like, you know, there's nothing about you that spikes you that stands out. So there is this fine line of thinking about how do I want to be enough of a pattern match that I'm taken seriously, but enough of a pattern break that people see me for who I actually am. And I think that that, that theme of being seen for who we actually are is something that I've talked a lot about with Asian American friends and POC friends in general is just, you know, whiteness is kind of the, the default especially when you think American, kind of going back to the, you know, the very first thing we talked about, when you think about American, you think white person, just by default, even I do. And I you know, was born and raised here, but, but there's a certain impression of what American means. And you know, being white is usually the default in our society, it, in the US and North America. So I think as an Asian American leader and an Asian American woman, thinking about how do I, be enough of a pattern break that people can see me as an individual has been a really big part of, of my journey. And so there's, there's certain things that I think it's very individual for, for each person of what those, what those things, pattern breaks and pattern matches are. So I tend to look younger for my age and, and that's been a problem throughout my career. It's not as much of a problem now because I'm in my mid thirties, but you know, all throughout my twenties, like there were you know, even a couple of years ago, like there were, there were 20, early 20 something year olds who looked older than I did. And 
that's an interesting thing to think about because technically we should judge people based on their accomplishments, years of experience, what they've done in those years, in pure years. But also like when someone just looks a little bit older, like you assume that they have seniority, right? And so I've been in rooms and in situations where I was the most senior person in the room, but people assumed that other people who were, you know, usually men, usually looked older, usually white, were in charge. So that's super annoying and super frustrating. And honestly, I try not to think about it too much because it is very upsetting and very angry, right? I think that it makes sense. So I also, I think it's, it's okay to be upset about stuff like that. I think it's very normal. I used to beat myself up about getting upset about it. And now I'm just like, no, like that sucks. That legitimately sucks. That's normal to feel upset by it. So when I think about the range of motion and the expectations that people have of us, one of your other guests, Deb, talked about with women dealing with warmth versus competence and that men are judged based on competence, but women have to be warm and competent. And that what that means on a daily basis is that if a man can say something offhand and sound more direct, people will be like, okay, that makes sense. And then if a woman says something offhand and is a little bit direct, you're like, wow, that was kind of abrupt. Like, I feel like that was maybe unnecessarily curt and I don't feel good about that. Like, right. And so all of a sudden there, now there's assumptions about that woman's leadership ability, your relationship with that person, whether they like you, whether you even like them anymore. Right. Whereas like no second thoughts, if a man were, were a bit more direct, they get the benefit of the doubt. So I think a lot about the benefit of the doubt also, and who it's given to and who it's not given to, because I think in, in our working world, especially the kinds of companies that, you know, we're talking about, most people are, are progressive-ish and know that like, okay, being racist is bad, being sexist is bad, right? Like that's kind of like, we're all operating under that assumption. And yet unconscious bias and benefit of the doubt, I think those are things that are so insidious and so sneaky because it is so subconscious, right? Like when you give someone the benefit of the doubt for being a bit curt, and being a bit too direct or saying something that like, you know, is felt like, like it wasn't warm enough. We give men that benefit of the doubt that, oh, they're just actually, they had a good point. Like I did mess up here and, and they were direct about it. Right. So they, they get the benefit of the doubt, but women might not necessarily, or an Asian American leader might not necessarily, or right. Like, so I think that it's that, that range of motion issue is something where I, it's always a filter in my mind. Like it's just a constant filter that's there. And that does add additional mental load. But I think it's something that is a necessary reality for, for a lot of leaders who look like us. I resonate with so much of that. And the, the most poignant thing from what you said there was it's almost like a, a catch-22, this idea of pattern breaking versus pattern matching within these tight parameters of what your range of motion is expected to look like. Because let's just take Asian Americans as an example here, right? Like we want to expand the variety of narratives for what an Asian American person can look like or what an Asian American leader can look like. But when the broader society and institutions that you operate in expect you to act in a certain way, it's almost like you incur a cost by pattern breaking. So then you stay confined within that identity and you can't create that multitude of patterns of, of identity 
that allow for a broader range of motion. On this topic of pattern breaking, something that is traditionally thought of as an Eastern culture or like an Asian cultural value is cooperation. And something that's important to you, especially in recent years, is learning to grow into your voice and your power and being able to embrace conflict versus leaning more towards a side of cooperation. Could you tell us a bit more about what that journey was like for you to be able to embrace that conflict a bit more? And more so, how does it tie into this idea of pattern breaking that we spoke about previously? My parents are Taiwanese and they have been living in the U.S. for 40 some years. And Taiwanese culture is very warm. It's very humble. It's very familial. And I think growing up with that culture, I was always taught to be very humble and to downplay things. And, you know, so if someone, if someone came to your house and you were serving them tea and cookies, you know, a, a Taiwanese person would be like, oh, like these are not great. And I know this is not up to your standards or anything, but like, please, I hope this is okay. What do you think? And like, meanwhile, it's like their best, like, they're like trying their best and like putting out the best stuff. And so like that, that default of like, oh, like this is, you know, just like downplaying, like this is not that good, even though like this is the best you could do and you know, it's really good. I feel like that plus wanting to make space for other people doesn't necessarily fit that well in, you know, Western culture or the working world. And I remember as a kid, whenever my family and I were getting to an elevator, we would always make ourselves really small and squeeze, squeeze, squeeze to let more people in because that was the, the kind thing to do, right? Like that's like the polite thing is like, okay, let try to let more people in, be thoughtful. And, and those values were something that I was, was raised with. And what that also meant though, is that I would be squished uncomfortably, not just like squished a little bit, but like to the point it was making space for other people to the point where it was uncomfortable and, and a bad experience for me. And I remember in adulthood realizing one day that I don't want to do that anymore, that I'm going to stand normally and have and expect normal personal boundaries and that I don't have to like press up against, you know, the wall just to, just to let a few more people in, that they can wait. It's fine. And it almost felt wrong and selfish and bad that like, am I a bad person that like, now I'm like just standing normally and like, Hey dude, you'll just have to wait two minutes for the next one. Right? Like, you know, like it felt jarring because it was so different than, than what I, you know, had grown up with the way that I was raised. There were a lot of good things about it. And there are some things that, that I want to continue to take with me and other things that I now should renegotiate and take another look at to see how it fits into the world that I'm living in now. And I think, I think reflecting on that regularly has been really helpful. And that's where the cooperation versus conflict part comes in, because I realize that there are a lot of times in the workplace where productive conflict is the right thing to do, that you should speak up about something and confront somebody and call people out respectfully and in private. And I think like before it was like, how can I talk myself out of that conflict? I would do all kinds of mental gymnastics to convince myself that things were actually okay. And that like, I shouldn't be that bothered by this or you know what, that really wasn't a big deal and it'll all blow over, et cetera. When secretly it was eating me up inside and I was festering on it 
and it was really bothering me and sucking up a ton of energy. So, and, and a ton of emotion. And, and I think through the years realizing that I can either continue hoping things will go away or just solve themselves or speak up and learn to speak up and, and look into and learn and really train myself on the skills of how to have hard conversations. Um, and that really led to a lifelong study of persuasion and influence and empathy and aligning incentives and negotiation and sales. Like all these things, that was not a skill that I had growing up or was really taught. I really leaned into learning all that in the work, workplace. And I think that skill set and that mindset of conflict is okay. And, and if conflict is okay, that means that I can learn how to deal with it well. And there are tools and there's literally, there's a craft to having hard conversations. I think thinking about the craft is actually really inspiring. If, if there is a craft, then that means you can learn the craft, right? There's no voodoo magic and no like hoping and praying. And I think that's really, really empowering. So many thoughts on this. At the very end, uh, you were talking about the craft of having really difficult conversations at work. <laughs> and Angie and I were in the in the Zoom chat, right? Like, as you were saying that, just like laughing, because I feel like uh, this experience for us, specifically for me, has been awesome because of the relationship that Angie and I have and, and the conflict that we may go through and then the conversation that we can have to make sure that we understand each other, make sure that each other's heard, make sure we leave the, the room uh, feeling good about it instead of, like you mentioned, like just offloading something and then walking away. Um, and, and I want to, I want to use that as a transition to your work with Maven as well, because one of your, and, and specifically your relationship with, with your co-founder, Guggen, he's, he's also, he, he's also an Asian American. He's, he's South Asian. And, and so I'm, I'm curious, I just want to hear you talk about how you've taken this, this personal upbringing, these professional attitudes and, and frameworks and mentalities and values and, and applied it to your relationship with Guggen. Like, is it, do you find that it is quite nuance that he is also an Asian American founder and also like uh, what is Maven I uh, would love for you to give a little a little plug there for that too yeah yeah for sure Gogna and I have pretty well I was gonna say pretty different views on with conflict and cooperation specifically I think is a, I think that's a great example because he talks about how in his family conflict and talking about conflict and kind of debating was very natural and normal Whereas in my family, it was the opposite. So I think that it speaks to how different the Asian American experience can be from, you know, one culture to the other, one family to the other, but taking a step back with Maven. So real quick. So Maven is the first platform for cohort-based courses. So cohort-based courses are live, interactive, community-driven courses with a start and end date where a group of people come together and learn together for a set period of time. The idea for Maven was born from, from MOOCs, massive open online courses, video-driven evergreen courses, essentially like Udemy or Skillshare courses where it's basically a series of videos. And the completion rate for MOOCs is pretty low. It's between three to 7%. So a bunch of people sign up for courses and are really excited by it. And a tiny percentage of people actually finish. Myself included, I have a calligraphy hand lettering course sitting in Skillshare somewhere from years ago that I watched half a lecture of and never went back to. Um, so the idea of core-based courses is that they're much more community-driven. So there's a lot more accountability. 
with learning for the group people. I think linking all of it together with, with background and now trading Maven, I think that what I said earlier about embracing the things that make you different and thinking hard about how you can turn a bug into a feature. I think that's really such um, an important principle and takeaway that I continue thinking about to this day. And, you know, with being an entrepreneur and creating Maven, all the things that I was, you know, poo-pooed about and finger-wagged and punished for, if you will, in, in a lot of previous roles in more traditional environments have become amazing here. Like, they're, like that's why, like, all those things that, that were bad and, and that I wish I changed are the things that allow me to be really good at my job. This has been a super fun conversation, Wes. Really, really appreciate you coming on and just sharing so much incredible wisdom with us. I'm so excited to go back and listen to this episode with you. So really appreciate you taking the time and this has been fantastic. Yeah, thank you so much, Angie and Jay. Really, really had fun with this. Thanks so much for tuning in to Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Mm-hmm.